shifting gears here. We're in week two of our series on 1 Corinthians. And last week, I invited you to pray through 1 Corinthians. We're going to be doing that in the coming weeks. So I'm just curious. I've heard from some people how much they like that. And so this week, we were looking at 1 Corinthians 4 through 9 together, praying at meditate. How many of you did that? Let me just see. No shame here. I'm going to invite some of you to do that. We're regularly hearing, hey, I want some kind of program or guide to read. Immerse yourself in 1 Corinthians. If you're in something else, finish it out. But it would be wonderful as a church, wouldn't it, John Mode? He mentioned that if we read through, prayed the scriptures and studied them together we're seeing that 1 uh, Corinthians really shows us how to be the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. And last week you saw, I'm, I want us to put up the next slide here. I didn't use this one last week, but Corinth is a strategically located city in ancient Greece. And it was a wild cosmopolitan city of about 90,000 people. And this is an artist's rendition of it near the mountains, near these harbors, and trade went through the city of Corinth. I mentioned last week, if you heard, it was a little bit New York, a little bit Los Angeles, and a little bit Las Vegas. This was a powerful, influential, cosmopolitan city, and Paul, of all the cities in this area, this peninsula, he chose Corinth to plant a church. He said, I'm going to establish a beachhead for the gospel in the city of Corinth. And we saw last week that We looked at those three verses that opened his letter. He talked about his apostleship, the call for the Corinthians to be saints who are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And then he ended his opening there with the grace and peace of God infusing the church. Today, we're going to look at the next six verses. So if you have your Bible, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. And I've encouraged you to be old school Bring your Bible. If you want to use your phone, you can. We'll have it on a slide. But I think there's something fun and studious about bringing your Bible and bringing a notebook to jot some things down. Who knows? The Lord may speak to you, may highlight something for you to pray into for yourself, your business, your colleagues, your family. You never know. We expect God to speak to us through his word. What Paul's doing in these verses here, which I'm going to read in just a minute, he's doing a gracious redirection. So he's giving thanks, but he's got some motivations here. He's giving thanks to God. So we're seeing from the beginning, Paul is a person of prayer and he calls the church to be people of prayer. And as he reads this, he's doing some things. So listen for it. I'm going to read verses four through nine. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the word of God. What's amazing here is in these six verses, 
Think about this. Paul is giving thanks for people that have been a pain in his rear. This church has caused him grief. They haven't done things right. They've misused and abused the spiritual gifts. Just listen to some of the things going on there. Incest in the church, suing one another, fighting around the Lord's table, saying, I'm more spiritual than you are, dividing. I mean, these people are a mess. And what does Paul do? He gives thanks for them. That's amazing. It's as if Paul, through giving thanks, rather than turning to them, he's going to do that later and point out pastorally, these are things to work on, but he turns to God first. And he says, I'm going to call into being the things that aren't. You guys are a mess, but yet I'm giving thanks. And through my prayer of thanksgiving, I'm going to call out your destiny as mature, spirit-empowered saints. So Paul gives thanks here, first of all, for God's grace in verses four through seven. Let's look at this. Paul uses a very rich word, give thanks, which is eucharisteo. You hear eucharist in that. And this word is full of meaning and power. It's what Jesus did at the Last Supper. Eucharisteo. He gave thanks to the Father and broke the bread and they drank the wine together. So Paul is deliberately using this word of thankfulness. He'll use it again in chapter 11 when he instructs the Christians how to do the Lord's Supper. Something he received from the Lord that you eucharisteo. You give thanks. And I think he's calling the church there to be Eucharistic people. He's saying, I'm a Eucharistic person. Let's say that, Eucharistic. Eucharistic. So Paul is showing, I'm thankful, and I'm calling you to be thankful people, just like Christ himself was. What's he do? He gives thanks to God for them. Again, I mentioned, they're a mess. They're divisive. They're cliquish. They're having improper relationships, and yet he chooses at the beginning of this letter to give thanks. I'm Eucharisteo for you. This went to work on me this week. You know how that is? You start studying, meditating on scripture, and all of a sudden it starts getting inside your mind and heart, speaking to you, maybe even if you don't want to hear it. So I'm in the car driving home, thinking about this, giving thanks And the Lord said, I've got some people for you to give thanks for. And I said, oh no, I would just rather talk about it on Sunday, being this spiritual person, right? And he said, no, I'm going to actually teach you something about being thankful for people that you wouldn't naturally be thankful for. And so, of course, the Holy Spirit brings these people to mind, and I began to give thanks for them. And it began to soften my heart, began to change my mind, I began to view the person in the grace of God, what God has for this person. And really, I couldn't get away from this one person for about 15 minutes. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this. Thank you for, and I began to see things in that person and call them out. So there was formation that was happening inside of me, and I'm believing that God is gonna answer those prayers. So I invite you, our Lords, to give thanks like Paul did for people that it might not come naturally. So think about that this week. Maybe at work, 
maybe with a spouse, a friend, family member, someone around here you don't like very much. You'd rather kick them in the shins than pray for them. But this is part of being Eucharistic people, thankful people. And something does happen. I don't quite get it. I'm a novice in it, but I want to learn with you about giving thanks. He gives thanks for the grace of God. Look at the text here, still in verse 4. And again, this is one of those things that could kind of slip by us. Thank you for grace. But Paul, it's a loaded term here. He's saying a couple of things. One is he's saying, I am thankful for the mercy that God has shown you and continues to show you. He's changed your lives. You're broken, but he's called you to be saints and holy. There's something else interesting though, church, that he means when he says grace. And again, ponder this for a moment. He also means thank you for the charismata, the gifts. You've read Corinthians before, many of you. They didn't do so well with the spiritual gifts, did they? They would speak over each other all the time. I speak in tongues more than you and I can do it more loudly. I'm gonna prophesy more. You had wrangling going on and yet Paul turns to God and says, thank you for the charismata. Thank you for the grace, the gifts, the concrete expressions of your presence among these people. And he's gonna say several things here about that. And he is adjusting their thinking here though. He's saying that these graces or gifts are given in who? In Christ Jesus. So he's readjusting their thinking about the gifts and he's rooting them in the generosity of the Father, but in the person of Jesus. And this means there's no room for boasting. If the gifts are given, the mercy of God is given in Christ Jesus and the charismata, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given in Christ Jesus, that means none of us have anything to brag about. Actually, the more gifted you are, the more humble you should be. Amen? So he is reminding these people that struggled with spiritual pride and using their gifts over one another. He's going to say in chapter 4, what do you have that you didn't receive? The answer is nothing. Our Lords, what do we have that we did not receive? Nothing. So this is a call to see the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. What's he go on to say in verses five and seven? The Corinthian believers have been enriched in Christ in these two things. What are they? Speech and knowledge of every kind. He's using two words that they really love. Speech and knowledge. The Greek words are logos and gnosis. And so he's saying, this word that you like, speech, is prophetic utterance. He's saying, you guys like to prophesy. You like to hear from God, and you like to utter what God is saying. And I'm grateful that God has given you this gift. I'm grateful that he's also given you knowledge, gnosis, spiritual insight. But he's readjusting their thinking here. They've been overly focused on the gifts themselves and Paul is saying, how about the giver? You know, these gifts are given in Christ Jesus from the Father and it's wonderful to pursue them, which he's gonna say later on, but 
They serve a purpose, and that is to draw you closer to the Father. He goes on to say, look at the next phrase here. The gifts actually strengthen the testimony of Christ. So he's saying, as I preach the gospel, God is showing tokens of the truth, the veracity of the gospel by giving you gifts. Here I am planting a church in Corinth, the most unlikely place with the most unlikely people, and yet God is confirming the testimony or the word of the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus by giving you spiritual gifts, even though you may not deserve them. So he is giving some gracious redirection here. Love the giver of the gifts and recognize that the gifts reinforce the truth of the gospel. As I was reflecting on this, I was saying, Lord, I love your gifts. And I don't want to diminish that at all, but I want to love you more. And I was just sitting there thinking of my son Jake when he was almost two. And he would come and sit next to me and I would pop Cheerios in his mouth. And he would sit there for a good hour and I would just pop one in, pop one in. Man, he really liked me. And I could get him to do just about anything just by popping those Cheerios in his mouth. He would sit there and I would just drop in one after another after another. He might go away for a minute and then he's coming back. Boy, he really loved daddy as long as I had Cheerios. If I didn't, he would wander away. Not very interested in you. I'm going to go slobber on something else. As Jake got older, he would come and sit and snuggle with me on the couch and just get real close. He still does. He's kind of on the cusp there at 12, but he'd get real close and just lean against me and maybe even say, I love you. I love you, Dad. There's no Cheerios. He just wants to be with me. And so I think Paul is reminding us here, yes, we love the gifts and we want them, but we want to just snuggle up close to the Father and learn to love the giver. And when we do that, church, the gifts flow, don't they? When we're close to the Father and we just say, hey, I want to be with you. I just, I love you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you put up with me on a daily basis. I love you back. You love me first, I love you, and I just want to be with you. And it's out of that place of friendship that God gives all kinds of gifts. I think it even just proves that he can trust us. We're not in it like he's a Coke machine, and we're saying, hey, what can you give me here? But we're just with him. We want to be with the Father. It's interesting here, if you look back at the text, Paul says that this church is not lacking in any spiritual gift, right? Which reminds us even of what we're doing this morning. He's not speaking to one or two people. Who's he speaking to? The whole church. No one person has a ton of gifts. God distributes them through the whole church. So he's looking at the church and he's saying, combine together, you're not lacking in any gift. And he does something strange here, though. He mentions not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of Jesus Christ. Here comes another gracious adjustment here. How many times do we think about spiritual gifts in light of the second coming? I don't, personally. I've done it this week as God is graciously readjusting my thinking. 
One of the best commentators, and I've been using his commentary, um, if you're a commentary geek, you could get this, Gordon Fee, F-E-E. He's a charismatic theologian that's written a wonderful commentary, and he says this. He says that Paul is putting the Corinthians' giftedness in a proper perspective here of the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. The idea that the kingdom of God is already present, but not yet consummated or fully wrapped up. Who cares, Brock? Who cares what Gordon Fee says? That's boring. That's irrelevant. But listen to what Paul is doing here. Regarding the gift of prophecy, Paul is saying, church, you see in part and you know in part. The gift of prophecy is not full-blown and you should not be prideful. Hey, I've got more revelation than Mike. Mike's got more revelation than so-and-so. You know what? We all don't see very well in the Spirit. We try, don't we? And we can mature, but we prophesy in part. And Paul's reminding them of this. He's saying, use your gifts with an eye to the second coming when Christ is fully revealed, and you'll see him face to face. Do you see it? He's also reminding this church that loved healing to view healing, to view the gifts The kingdom's already present, and the kingdom is yet to come. So with healing, sometimes God heals, right? Sometimes God doesn't heal. Who is it up to? It's up to God. Who's it up to? God. So that means that we don't have to twist God's arm. I've got to believe more. I've got to pray. I'm pronouncing it. I'm declaring. You know what? God didn't need any of that. The scriptures say, James 5, other places, pray for the sick. You don't have to muster up anything. You don't have to claim it. You don't have to yell, holler, prove to other people, I've got faith. You just lay your hands on someone and you pray for them in the name of Jesus. And because the kingdom is already present, he may heal, but he also may not. He may offer partial healing. It's up to him. He's the sovereign healer, isn't he? So this framework of the kingdom of God Paul is introducing into this thanksgiving. Basically, every time Paul opens his mouth, the Holy Spirit is giving him something rich. Are you seeing it? In just this simple thanksgiving. The second thing here that Paul gives thanks for is God's strength. Look at verse eight. He will also strengthen you, Corinthians, to the end so that you may be blameless. So Paul here is giving thanks that God will strengthen them through his son. I love it. One of the early commentators on scripture, a guy from Egypt named Origen of Alexandria, he says this in the third century, who sustains us? Christ Jesus, the word and wisdom of God. He sustains us not merely for a day or two, but forever. This dude knew what he was talking about because he faced martyrdom. So he's looking at a passage like this and saying, Christ the word is the one who strengthens and sustains us. Paul is using a a word picture here. You remember we talked about the Isthmian Games. It was second only to the Olympics in Corinth. And Paul, lingering behind his words here, is the idea of the church at Corinth finishing their race. He's saying, God is going to strengthen you to the end. As you live life, God is faithful. God will empower you to finish the race of faith. 
What does your text say here? So that you may be what? Blameless? Is that what your text says? Guiltless? That's even worse. Paul is looking at a church that is a mess. And he's saying, you know what? The Father loves you so much. He's given you so much grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. He's given you all the gifts you need. And he is going to make sure that when you stand before Christ himself, the great judge of the nations, you'll be what? Blameless. Anybody need that word for today? You feel the opposite of blameless? Maybe you feel blameworthy or guilty. Surrender to Jesus. He will make sure that on that day when you stand before him along with this broken church at Corinth, he'll look at you and say, you're guiltless. It's beautiful. It's the gospel. It's stunning that he is praying this and pronouncing it for the church at Corinth and for us for all time. A third thing here as we wrap up before you go and sign up and they get rushed at the tables with everyone volunteering because of the grace that's been poured out in your lives, right? Preach it, Mike says. That will cost Mike lunch for doing that. The third thing that Paul is giving thanks for is faithfulness. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son. This is like the icing on the cake or the icing on the donut that you had this morning. He's given thanks for God's grace, strength, and faithfulness. And now he's redirecting their attention again. And he's saying all of this is based on the faithfulness of God. God is good. God loves you. God will never let you down. He may answer prayer differently than you would hope for, but God will never let you down. God is faithful. And tucked in these verses, I think, is the secret to all of life. Yes, you heard me. You hear people exaggerate all the time. Okay, what's it gonna be? This is the secret to the spiritual life, what Paul says right here. And I'm gonna quote Gordon Fee again. Listen, believers are not only in Christ and as such freed from the guilt of their sins, but are also in fellowship with Christ himself. And as such, are privileged to commune with him through the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? Did you get it? You are called to fellowship with the Son of God himself. Oh, but don't you know what I was up to last week? Or last night? You are called into fellowship with the Son of God. Press into him. Those things he can take care of quickly. Some of you say, ah, his mercy doesn't reach far enough, deep enough. Yes, it does. You are called, every single one of us here are called into fellowship with the Son of God. It's too much. Would you agree that's pretty big? Kind of bounces off the mind. It's hard to sink in. And if you surrender to Jesus, you give your life to him. His Holy Spirit indwells us. It's what we're celebrating today, Pentecost. The Spirit of God indwells every believer and is ready to help you, ready to sit in the driver's seat of your life. This is the secret, 
the key to a victorious spiritual life in Jesus. I just found myself this week, again, this text was just going to work on me and when temptation was knocking, you know what I said? I'm in fellowship with the Son of God. No thank you. So, when temptation knocks on your door and says, hey, why don't you compare yourself to that person? She's more attractive than you are. Her life is better. What can you say? I'm in fellowship with the Son of God. Be gone. How about undressing that person in your mind? Imagine what it would be like to be with him or her, not your spouse. I'm in fellowship with the Son of God. Be gone. We could do this all day, couldn't we? How about getting even with that person? They wronged you and it's time to get even. What can you say? I'm called to be in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. I'm his. So this, again, is this practical or what? You are called into fellowship with him. And you can begin to fire arrow prayers. We talk about arrow prayers around her here. And we can say, Lord Jesus, I turn to you now. I'm in fellowship with you. What Paul is giving us here is immensely practical and pastoral. It's not some kind of lofty theology. He's giving you and the church at Corinth and me something to live into. It's the secret to overcoming temptation. You can actually use it to practice spiritual judo. Anybody know the secret behind judo? What's the crux of, of judo? You use the enemy's power against them, right? So when temptation comes your way, you say, I'm using that energy to turn to Jesus. You see how practical it is? I'm in fellowship with the Son. No, thank you. I'm turning my back on it. Your own temptation can lead you into deeper intimacy with Jesus. Do you hear that? Your own bent towards sin with all of these things coming at you can actually make you a prayer. So this week, try this out. What's interesting, the text says that we're called into fellowship with the Son. It means two things. It's the word koinonia, so you're called into koinonia with Jesus himself. Intimacy, closeness, but it also means fellowship with other people. Some of us like to think, oh, I want intimacy with you, Jesus. I want to be friends. I want to be close. But those people, no thanks. Too messy, too costly. I'm tired of it. I want you, but not your church. It's not the way it works, friends. So this actually is a double invitation to intimacy, koinonia with Jesus, and koinonia with his church. It's a double-barrel weapon in the face of the enemy. Intimacy with Jesus and with his people. Our leadership team has been talking about this, and we actually are finding specific people that we can talk to on a regular basis. Find your person, Mike. Find your person, Brad. Find your person, Brock. And at least once a month, open up your heart to the person. Confide in them. Tell them where you're struggling. What are your weaknesses? And open your soul. Let them see inside your heart. This is part of koinonia with Jesus and part of koinonia with one another. Is that easy? Is that comfortable? 
Many of you do that already. If you don't have someone to have koinonia with, I urge you to do that. It's life-giving. So Paul here, giving thanks for God's grace, his strength, his faithfulness, and I want to invite you to try a couple of these things. Maybe it's being a Eucharistic person, giving thanks. Maybe it's using some spiritual judo and saying, I am turning to have fellowship with the Son. This word from Paul is rich and helpful. Next week, Esther is going to be preaching on 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17, so you can write that down or put it in your phone. I invite you to meditate on verses 10 through 17, and it's going to be about division in the church and unity in the church, and then the next week we'll come back and I will look at verses 18 through 25 on the message of the cross for those of you who like to read ahead. Mike, do you want to come up? Lord, I just ask that you would take the power of your word and the seeds that you sow in our hearts and minds and you would cause it to grow. We thank you for the power of these words from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth and to the church in Oklahoma City at our Lord's.